Welcome listeners to this week's Behind the Scenes with Latinx Lit Audio Mag. I'm your host, Teresa Douglas. Today, we're going to be speaking to Marta Bartis. Marta has been featured in Latinos Magazine among the top 10 most successful Mexicans in Canada, named also one of the top 10 most influential Hispanic Canadians. Marta Batis was born and raised in Mexico City, but has been living in Toronto since 2003. Her articles, chronicles, reviews, and short stories have appeared in diverse newspapers and magazines, not only in her homeland, but also in Spain, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Costa Rica, Peru, Ireland, England, and the United States and Canada. Marta has penned two short story collections in Spanish, A Todos Los Voy a Matar, I'm Going to Kill Them All, Castillo Press, Mexico, 2000, and De Transito, In Transit, Terra Nova Editores, Puerto Rico, 2014. Her award-winning novela, Boco de Lobo, was originally published in Spanish, both in the Dominican Republic and in Mexico in 2007 and 2008, respectively, and released in its first English edition as The Wolf's Mouth, Exile Editions, 2009. In 2018, it appeared in its French version as La Huele du Loup, Lugar Comun Editorial, and is a new English edition under the title Damiana's Reprieve, Exile Editions. Boca de Lobo is also available through Audible as an audiobook in Spanish since 2021. Editor of the anthology Desde el Norte, Narrativa Canadiense, Contemporánea, UAM 2015. Marta is also part of the editorial committee of the successful books Historias de Toronto and Historias de Montreal, Lugar Común 2016 and 2019, respectively. She holds a PhD in Latin American literature and is an ETA certified literary translator. Besides being the founder and instructor of the Creative Writing in Spanish course currently offered by the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto, she is a part-time professor at three universities in the greater Toronto area where she teaches Spanish language and literature as well as translation. Well, welcome, Marta. I'm happy to have you on the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one of the things that we like to start with, this is a literary podcast. We talk about literature all the time. We also talk about food. It's it's the not-so-secret second theme of this podcast. And I would love to hear and, and have the listeners find out, what is your favorite comfort food? Oh, I have a lot of things I love. <laughs> In terms of comfort food, it's very hard for me to choose only one. I think it, uh, you know, always, always by default, it would be tacos, any kind Mm -hmm. of tacos. They drive me crazy. I love them. Uh, But I am also, you know, um, I love food and I very much into carbs, which my doctor always wants to, you know, (laughs) reprimand me about. So, of course, I'm into, you know, pancakes and chocolate. (laughs) You know, honestly, life, you put anything in front of me, I'll eat it. You know, I am really very easy, but I do have a sweet tooth and I do love, you know, milk chocolate. And um, I don't like chocolate cake, though. So Mm. I'm not that big of a cake person. I'll eat cake, but it's not, you know, not something that I wake up one day and I say, oh, I want to have cake today. Yeah. That never happens. No. 
Um, is, is the chocolate or the or or just like a like a what? What's what's some of your go to desserts? Oh well, you know now that in Canada we can get gancitos, gancitos marinela, which are these very very trashy Mexican, you know, dishes <laughs> when I was a kid growing up. And uh, and since I left Mexico twenty years ago, I haven't had regular access to them. But now mm-hmm. stores in 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 Toronto carry them, and that's the end of me. I tell you, the end of me. <laughs> I love them, so I always have them in my freezer. And you know, a gancito a day gives the crampiness away. So there you I go. am very happy gancito eater right there. You know, but anyone who knows anything about pastries knows that gancito is absolutely not a fine thing. It's junk food. But it's junk food at its, you know, highest quality, especially when it brings you happy memories from childhood. Yeah. I mean, nostalgia is everything. I Here in Vancouver, there's a store that I found when I, I first moved here called Fresh is Best. And if any of the Fresh is Best people are listening, thank you um, for having things like hominy uh, and tamales made by people who actually know what they're doing. Uh, that that's been key, but yes, the little candies that are there, the jaritos that are there, the oh. right chocolate, mm-hmm. like to make hot chocolate. It's abuelita all the way for me. I gotta say, yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, you just you need the right things. Now, is it fine dining? No, but it's childhood. And I and will it, take it over any fine dining any day. You know, give me un yeah. pan dulce and hot chocolate, and I'll be mm-hmm. a happy person. All the way. And anyway, it's good to be happy with smaller things because it's a lot easier <laughs> to locate the smaller thing. Like $5, small thing, happiness. $100, small thing. Oh, that's not a small thing. $100, you're not going to have it all the time. That's uh, right. If ever. That's right. Oh, now see, now if it weren't so hot, because listeners, um, probably at this point, many of you are going through a heat wave. Here in Canada, we are also going through a heat wave. And so the idea of hot food, not really um, wonderful right now, but oh, now I feel like I need that hot cocoa. Just got to f- get it frozen or something. I don't know. Yeah. A, that, a, a, a frozen gansito item where it's at, you know? <laughs> they're, they're, see, look at this. Every time I'm on the show, I get hungry. <sighs> All yeah. right. Well, yes, I'm, I'm going to be eating those, but we, we should actually talk about the actual thing that brought you here, which is the the lovely piece of writing that you sent. And again, it's part of a larger work, but, but before we, we talk about it, I'm contradicting myself, as I always do on the show. Let's talk about you. And, and can you please tell us, when did you start writing? Thank you. Well, you know, I started writing basically by accident. I originally wanted to be an actress, and I was hmm. a professional actress for several years back in Mexico. But um, it was in acting school that I had a teacher who was our literature teacher at, you know, in drama school. And he was, a, he's, he's a journalist, he's still alive, and I love him dearly. And um, so he uh, made us write because he said, you know, writing is an exercise that's good to, you know, practice your putting stuff together that makes sense, that that kind of thing. So um, he made us uh, write a short story. And I had never really written a short story before, like seriously. I had done some stuff, you know, for high school uh, that had been entertaining, but never taking anything seriously. And... um, I remember reading that story 
to my classmates in acting school um, live, you know, one day during class. And uh, they were talking a little bit when I started, but then all of a sudden they were quiet, you know, following what I was saying. And I have to say, this was a very cheesy, badly written story, okay? But (laughs) I managed to catch their attention. And then at the end, when I finished, some of them were even crying and they clapped and they were so happy. And my teacher was like, I don't know what the hell you're doing in drama school. You're a writer. (laughs) You know, and it had never occurred to me. And then... At this drama school, I was dating a guy who was my first uh, boyfriend, and he left me for another woman. And uh, that, of course, set me, you know, down the hellhole of despair. And uh, to get out of it, I started writing again and um, writing, you know, stories about all the horrible things I wanted to do to him in revenge (laughs) for him leaving me. And uh, that gave birth to my first book that was, that's called uh, A Todos Los Voy a Matar, I'm Going to Kill Them All. And so there you go, that's how I started. It wasn't something that I went out consciously looking for. I guess it's something that found me because it was really what I had to do. And you know how life puts in front of you um, the things that you're supposed to, that you really need to do when you really have mm-hmm. to do something you cannot escape it. And I think uh, that that was writing for me. And I'm very grateful to my uh, teacher in acting school, Gonzalo Valdez Medellin, uh, a Mexican uh, playwright and a journalist and a very, very fine man. And uh, well, it's the thanks to him, you know, if he hadn't given us that exercise, I, I, I don't know what it would have taken, you know, to get me to get me writing. Yeah, that that's an amazing story. And and thinking about it, and I'm going to just go ahead and say I'm not an actor, and nobody would put me in front of anything to act. It, it seems to me, though, from the writing end of things, we embody our characters so much. At least I do when I'm writing and like trying to wear their skin a little bit and feel like, okay, well, what would they do in this situation? What's the next thing that makes sense? And, and I have to believe there are links to that with acting, because you have to inhabit a character when you're when you're acting. Am I off base on that, or does that sound sort of close? No, I think it's very accurate. I don't understand how anyone could write anything without doing that. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for me, it's a very organic uh, process, and I do use a lot of the techniques I learned in drama school in terms of how to analyze a character, how to approach a character, how to begin preparing to play a role. Mm-hmm. I use that now for my writing and I wear my characters and I have them with me. You know, I carry them like Hamlet carries his ghost everywhere until I'm ready to, you know, sit down and write. So I, for me, it's a very organic uh, process, very natural. I could not imagine doing it any differently. And of course, when I am writing, I am thinking like an actor and like a director. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. like stage directions. Where am I moving on stage? Where's my camera? Where mm-hmm. is the, what is the character doing? You know, the movements, the the little minutiae and little details, you know, that, uh, that they need to do. We are a dog positive show, by the way, everybody. Sorry, yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that's Olivia. Olivia Benson, uh, the pug, oh. my... Little dog. I am a total law and order junkie, so uh, (laughs) 
big Hi, fan Olivia. of her, Harjita, and so my dog is called after her character. So there you go. That's Olivia. Wonderful. Talking here. <laughs> well, she she had to get her her little intake on this acting too, I, and it's it's an interesting thing because again, there seem to be a lot of a lot of connections between those two, and and you you sent in some fiction and. You're gonna hear it's rustling, listeners, as I as I look at this, and and it's a gripping story, and I I can definitely see now that you said that how it is a very carefully placed camera view on some of these, and and I promise we're not gonna to get too far into this because you're gonna talk about this more in a bit, but even the section where the 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 mother and the daughter they've taken some of the the photographs off the wall, they, they haven't been dusted yet. You can see the marks and the outlines of where they were. And and to me, that was, again, just the, the little details in the story that make it so like I'm there. Like I could feel that dust on the top of the picture frame. I, I could see the, the pile of keep on on the couch and and the way that even at the end when the the character is trying to release some tension, she raises her arms up over her head and she's hoping to just sort of like release this moment. It is very cinematic. And it's it's gripping because when we read books these days, even if if we prefer them to movies, there are, there are people that do, we're, we're still informed by visual things, the TV, the, the movies, all of these things are in our, our mind's eye as readers, <clears throat> excuse me. And it's lovely to, to have that. So that, that was a, a definite strength in this but before before I gush because it's I, I always gush it's it's coming um I I do want to just ask you and back up a, a little bit is is fiction then your your first love is it your only love are you are you working in in other things and this is also a hint to talk about your book that came out in May by the way hint hint um tell me all about it well no my first love is theater Mm-hmm. That is, you know, my very first love is plays. I read plays. I love to go to the theater. There's nothing for me as electric and as inspiring as watching actors on stage doing their thing. Mm-hmm. That for me, that's that's the, you know, the theater is the temple where I go pray. It's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely my place, you know, where, that I, my happy place to be at. Um, but of course, um, I, I have written plays and I have seen them, uh, staged, uh, uh-huh. and, it's, and it's an absolutely fantastic feeling. Um, but it's, it's not, not as easy because for theater, you need so many people involved in everything. It's a, it's a communal thing. It's a, it's a ritual where everyone is, yeah, it's like, preparing a, a religious thing you know in, in my in my head so um it's very hard to you know find a team that's going to be doing it so i um i think that fiction gives me the chance to work on my own and then go on the very lonely and arduous uh, journey of finding a publisher and all that mm-hmm. um, but uh but no um fiction Fiction is my second and everlasting love. My first mm-hmm. passionate love is theater. 
Uh, I love the way you you state that. And fortunately, uh, this is a relationship that doesn't have to be monogamous. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's a happy threesome, I tell you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, we're not going to ask which one is the, the person on the side. But... <laughs> It's true. You have your, your plays and there's so many other people that have to agree to do this. You need your building and other actors and you need funding and the sets and goes on and on and on. And there's still production if you're doing fiction, but depending like, like for you being on this podcast, it was basically you writing it and, and me saying, wow, that's great. And then we get to, to talk together. So it is definitely in some ways a more immediate thing that you can do but I agree with you theater is amazing um, my own children I, I try to make sure that they they get to the theater for stuff that that they can under like they'll we'll go to Shakespeare or whatever but just so that they can see it yeah. because I think everybody should be exposed to this way of, of telling stories and, and creating a new reality it's just yeah. it's amazing yeah. so well, what can I say that's it's, it's- I am sold on that. I love it. If I if I had stayed in Mexico, I would have never left um, the theater, you know. I would have found a way to continue working, working around it or with it or on it, you know, on stage, mm-hmm. backstage, next to the stage, in front of the stage, <laughs> whatever, you know. Uh, Something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about about your story here. And and again, I have I have a copy, so listeners, you're going to hear wrestling. Can you give us just how did this idea come to you and your process for writing it? For this particular story, um, I have to start saying that this story um, mentions uh, Pablo Neruda, the great uh, Chilean poet. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Chilean, but universal, right? His poetry speaks, I think, to every human being. And um, I'm a big fan of Pablo Neruda's. And when I went to Chile for my um, doctoral research, I went to see his homes, two of the three homes that he had Hmm. there. And I was, you know, blown away by the beauty of it. Anyone going to Chile has to go and see his houses. but, But Pablo Neruda is a problematic figure because he was a communist and he had these three mansions, right? Yeah. And, uh, and they are mansions, and one of them faces the Pacific Ocean and the, the majestic waves uh, um, of the water and the way it's built. It's, you know, walking through his house, it's like walking through a poem. So I came back thinking I need to do something, you know, having to do with him. And I started looking into his life, and I discovered... Um, everything having to do with his first marriage. And I was horrified, you know, because all of this idea I had of him, you know, being so in love with his Mercedes, you know, La Chascona and all of the tribute that he he offered to, to her and all of this idea of the romantic, faithful, loyal man, whatever that I had of his relationship with her crumbled into pieces when I read what had happened with his first wife. And I'm not, I don't want to give um, our listeners, um, you know, uh, uh, a bad impression of Neruda. I think people change and, and whatever, but um, I, th- I found it very problematic, the relationship with, with his first wife and with his daughter, particularly. Yeah. 
and uh, and I wanted to say something about it because it's not something that is um, talked about often. You know, when you talk about Neruda, you don't think of him as a dad. And I have been, especially during the pandemic, um, questioning a lot of the roles around parenthood, you know, um, being cooped in, you know, at home with all the kids and, and the burden this has placed mostly on mothers and working women. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's always us, you know, it doesn't matter that it's 2022, it's still women carrying the heaviest part of the burden. And, uh, and that's wrong. So I wanted to, um, to address that through, you know, him through Neruda and uh, sort of bring him down from his pedestal and show him as the imperfect man that he was. And uh, hopefully if uh, other men read that, they're going to say they're not going to be like that and they're going to be responsible and, um, and uh, good fathers, right? I think um, that um, we talk a lot about motherhood, but we don't talk enough about... Um, the way men uh, parent. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, comments are done always um, pejoratively for, for example, uh, the um, African-Canadian or the African-American communities where they say, well, you know, the daddies are missing and that's why there are so many issues around there. But I don't think that's that's a problem that is just one single group. You know, I think it's, it's everywhere. Men haven't they are learning now i think it's it's better but in general men have always thought that parenting is a woman's job and and uh and i have news for you guys it isn't it's a shared task and a shared blessing so um i guess that's that's pretty much what i wanted to to address in this story yeah, and, and so that's a question I usually ask. And so let's push that a little bit because it's true. You you read this. I know I was shocked to find out that Neruda had a family that he abandoned and and not just left, but but left to, to die, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that that was it. He just cut ties and he moved on. So there's there's that father figure in there, there's the absent father slash grandfather figure who has just passed. In this story, and there's some um, details with him, like teaching his his daughter, the the mother in this story, to hum instead of cry, so that yeah. you don't you don't show weakness. And and obviously he he used that as a coping mechanism. But there's just that poignant moment where you find out, you know, this baby that was never allowed to cry, and yeah. oh, I read that and I thought, oh my goodness, that just that that did pierce me in the heart because. Who are you as a baby except somebody who should be crying over half of things, right? <laughs> Your milk spills. You get the pink cup instead of the blue cup and, and you lose it over. It's, it's part of childhood. It's, it's what children do. They're immature. They, they cry. They, they do things. They show their emotions. Mm-hmm. And just the type of, of life you're, you're bequeathing to somebody when you say that. Because if here's this, this woman who's an adult. She has her own grown daughter. And she's still humming instead yeah. of crying. And, and that, that feeling of not being, you know, we can't work. And maybe you can answer this, but of course you can answer this now that I say that. You're the author. Um, this idea that can she, can she cry 
now that her dad has has passed, does she feel comfortable doing that, or or is she at a place where where she can't? Is is that is that something you were trying to to work in, or did that just sort of pop up organically? It popped up organically, but I also think, um, and of course, I'm no one to really dwell on that. I know that my uh, grandfather was a soldier in uh, the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my mother had a very hard childhood because of the trauma that he that he had right from uh, basically going hungry uh, constantly during battle and uh, all the horrible things that he witnessed as um, you know Russian soldier mm-hmm. um, and um, I I tried to imagine him and the things that my mother told me about about him. And, uh, and I think that someone who grows with, uh, in a home where someone is broken like that, um, you know, that's, that's going to leave scars that are going to be there forever. Maybe this character will be able to cry later on, uh, but I don't think that she would cry in front of her daughter necessarily, mm-hmm. um, simply because she has been taught to, you know, not do that. You don't cry in public. You have to, you know, give a face of uh, courage. You have to, you know, um, give a certain image in order to stay safe, right? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she does break that, though, that, that cycle of, of silence in some ways, because she sits her daughter down and she tells her this story and and how her her mother, the, the character's grandmother, felt about this character and even sharing this idea of where their name Malva came from is a big, is a big deal. It's a big deal to have, have this, this silence broken from that when she could have just pushed her daughter away. She could have said, nope. And, and there's the end of it still. So there, there's definitely, there's definitely that going. That was for me, a a hopeful piece of this. Her mother is sharing something instead of closing off in a time when it can be difficult, like her, her father has just died. And what all of the complicated emotions that are around that anyway, even before you have other family history that might be that might be working through, it's, it was another example to me of of a woman being strong for the next generation. And it just left me admiring her to be able to be able to do that. Was that something, again, I may be reading so much into this because I really enjoyed this piece. (laughs) Here here I am gushing. It's so good. Um, It it, just to hear the, the tension that was in this as, as the mother is trying to sort of verbalize something that, that wasn't talked about at all really before. Was that something you were, you were trying to throw in as a theme there? Yes, because um, I think um, that after someone uh, dies, um, with all the grief and sadness comes a certain liberation. You can finally say stuff that you would have never said before because you were supposed not to or, you know, there was a certain, you know, rule not to touch upon certain subjects, um, Mm -hmm. whatever that may be, right? So... I did uh, do this on purpose, a kind of liberation, but also uh, very much, um, uh, you know, consciously because um, I wanted to 
keep the name alive, you know, yeah. the name of Malva, of uh, Neruda's daughter and these characters. And I think it's a beautiful name too. Uh, yes. But uh, I wanted to uh, to pronounce and write down her name so that she wouldn't be forgotten, right? Because I think that something that happens um, or that I feel uh, with um, writers and famous people, when you talk about their family, they they look like they're like side notes. Mm-hmm. They are like, um, and, and sometimes not even that, right? And, and, and these were people, this was a little girl, this was a woman who, who was left in an absolutely horrifying position. And, um, and I wanted to, you know, honor them and honor their memory and, uh, and, and say their names and bring their names to the present and give them a new meaning in the present by tying their story to the place that I call home, which is Canada. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you for, for keeping Malva's name alive and, and transmitting that to all of the listeners, to me, someone who also didn't know. It's it's the finest way that we can, as, as authors, behave, where we, we stand witness and, and we, we share that knowledge and we send it to the next generation. Thank you. So... On that note, uh, you you have you have a book that came out, and after listening to this piece, there are going to be many listeners who who want to follow what you're doing and find out more about your book. How can they how can they read about your career and the things that you publish? Uh, well, my new story col- uh, short story collection is called No Stars in the Sky. It was published by House of Anansi Press. So I think you cannot be any more Canadian than that. <laughs> and uh, I'm very, very happy, very thankful to them, very thankful to my uh, wonderful agent who's in Mexico. And um, it, I am living a dream right now, you know, with, with this mm. book and, and uh, everything that's going on around it and the opportunities to go to literary festivals and meet amazing people. I am really, really grateful and I have a website, uh, martabatis or marthabatis.com. I'm also a social media junkie, so I'm always there on Twitter <laughs> and on Facebook posting stuff. So if anyone wants to, you know, get in touch with me, I, I also have um, an Instagram, you know, account. And, uh, and you know, I always post on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook where I'm going to be reading or, you know, doing you know, mingling or just, you know, uh, going to see and, and fangirl around other authors, right? Because oh, yeah. So uh, I'm going to be uh, busy doing some, some very nice things in the, in the fall and it would be lovely to, to, you know, meet some of the people that hopefully will listen to this podcast and uh, listen to my story and hopefully they'll get interested in the book and they'll go look for it. And then hopefully they'll buy it because as, as we try to say always on this podcast, the way we get more Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin people in the bookstores, on the bookshelves, in the magazines, is if we as a community are purchasing those things and supporting with our, our dollars or pesos or yuan or whatever our uh, cash denomination is so that people can see that there is a demand. So 
look up uh, Martha's things and support her in her work. Thank, thank you. you. Go ahead. No, thank you. I wanted to say that what you just said is uh, absolutely true. Um, I think that the uh, Latino community is very vibrant um, and that we need to support one another, especially when we are working in the arts, uh, because mm -hmm. uh, those that's, that's always, you know, the area that gets the least funding and that people think, oh, this is the one that's dispensable. But then again, you know, it's the part that nourishes our spirit and that tells our stories and that. Exactly. Says, you know, things about who we are as a group, as a nation, as a community, as a language even, right? So in, in my book, I talk a lot about uh, Latin American characters and Latin American history and, uh, and uh, the issues that are present and urgent today. And also historical ones like the ones in, uh, in this particular story for, for today's podcast. Um, so uh, I, it would be, you know, really awesome if uh, more uh, Latinos or Latinx or anyone who loves Latin America, there are a lot of people who are not Latinos and they love Latin America, they mm -hmm. love Mexico, or beaches or resorts or food. Uh, if they come uh, closer to also, you know, what we produce in terms of uh, literature, uh, in 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 Canada, right? Because there there are not too many of us writing in English to begin with. Mm -hmm. So any support that we can get is uh, incredibly important. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming to the podcast, Marta. We we appreciated your time and hearing your work. Thank you, Teresa, for having me, and thank you to everyone who has. Uh, listened to this talk. I am very, very thankful.